Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, today we're going to hear another great episode from our archives, and this was first published about three years ago. And on the show, my guest is Anthony Iannarino. Now, Anthony is one of the most thoughtful people I know about sales, sales management, leadership. And he's an excellent writer. A guy writes a new blog post every day. And in this episode, we're talking about his book titled The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the 10 Commitments That Drive Sales. Among the topics we discuss in this episode are why closing isn't a single event, but a whole series of events. Uh, like 10, for instance, that span the entire buying process. We talk about what a closing mindset is. It's not the traditional closer stereotype that you see on popular media. We talk about how to become a person of value. And we talk about why all things being equal, relationships win. And as Anthony says, why all things being unequal, relationships will win. All that and much, much more. But before we get to Anthony... I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thanks. All right, let's jump into it. Is this my third time here? Yes. Well, no. Maybe four. Four. I think you may be joining Mr. Mark Hunter at the top of the list. How, how many of these have you done now? Uh, well, in terms of how many I've recorded, I think this is around 550. <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing that's a lot of podcasts well you know it's a lot of great content and i tell people they ask me why do i do this and i said because selfishly i get to talk to I've, you know every day i talk to somebody really smart who teaches me something new about sales or marketing or leadership or something so, i'm afraid you're going to be disappointed today yeah i don't think so <laughs> every time with you there's a gem that comes out but it's but it's it's that right i mean we always talk about the the importance of becoming sort of insatiably curious as a salesperson. Yes. And that's what feeds this for me is, you know, I've been in sales longer than most people have been alive and, and every day I get to learn something new. That's uh that's the sign of a great salesperson. I mean, constantly learning, trying to find an edge, trying to gain some advantage, trying to have some new tool in your toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of episodes, but a lot of great content, and and there's just so many smart people out there that have interesting things to say. So, and we'll put you in that category too for the fourth time. So, we lead off with a standard question: Is in your mind, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? Changing their mindset 
from thinking that their product or their service or their solution or their company's history or anything that differentiates them from their competitors is an interesting place to start a conversation and shifting that mindset to understanding that unless you have some point of view about their business, unless you have some insight, something that you believe they should be doing different, it's very difficult to create new opportunities. And mm -hmm. I, I shot a YouTube video for this last night for my channel uh, because I had a salesperson say, you know, I can't share my ideas until I do discovery because my prospective client knows their business better than I know their business. And well, we should hope that's true. If that person works in that business, they should know it better. But I keep going back to this idea of, look, if you want to be consultative and if you want to be a trusted advisor, if you want to be those things, then you have to know something that they don't know. And you have to have some opinion about what the right next move for them is based mm -hmm. on what you recognize going on in the greater economy or in their segment of the economy or something that your business is doing that can generate greater results than what they're doing now. Because if you don't have that and if you don't come in from that side, what happens is you look like a vendor. So you come in and you say, I want to tell you about my company. I want to tell you about our product, our services. They immediately go, great vendor. I know what to do with you. I'm going to hand you off to purchasing. And they will beat you up over your price mm -hmm, if we mm -hmm. buy anything from you at all. But the conversation needs to start at the other end of the spectrum, which is why should I be doing anything different than I'm doing now? And what do you know about that that would be helpful to me whether I buy anything from you or not? And it's a massive shift for salespeople to make right now, and it's probably the most important. And it boils down to, I was going to say it a different way, but having a point of view. I mean, I think that too many salespeople just want to say, look, I just need to sort of mirror and reflect back what the customer is saying, and that's not what they're looking for. Well, if there's information parity, why do I need you? Right. You're going to come and tell me what I already know, and you're going to ask me what I already know? It doesn't make any sense. There can't be information parity. You have to know something that I don't know for you to be somebody that I need on my team. And I think that's the error that many salespeople are making, thinking that they're going to learn something in discovery when the client's trying to discover. Right. And we we have to help them discover. We're doing discovery at the same time, but... The conversation needs to start in a very different place for most of us. All right. So we're going to talk primarily today about your excellent new book, The Lost Art of Closing. Now, <laughs> in sales, there's been this whole mythology built up about, quote, unquote, the closer, and none of which is very flattering. Yet, <laughs> yet we have whole industries, you know, sir, there's wholehearted devotion to this notion of the closer, which is, which is not what you're talking about. So I want you to define what closing means to you. Andy, put that coffee down. I mean, that 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 is that is uh, it's such a stereotype that Alec Baldwin did, and we make way too much of the final close, and we make way too much of the the concept that people should be focused on that. When the fact of the matter is, in B two B and B two G sales, where it's not a consumer, and where we're looking at something strategic, something that comes with risk, something where there's great value to be created. There's a bunch of closes, a bunch of commitments that you have to gain that are far more important and far more indicative of how well a salesperson is going to do. And I would start right with the first commitment, the commitment for time. Right. I mean, that that to me 
ends up being a much more difficult commitment to gain right now when people are super busy and when somebody already has a strategic partner sitting in your spot and where they're really heads down working and they've got more work than they can do. And then you're asking them for the one commodity that's finite and non-renewable, their time. And so they look at you and like, I can't give this person time. Um, that's a tougher one. And then when you get into the book, which I know you read, and thank you for the kind words, you find out that getting consensus or having a conversation about the right investment, all of these are difficult conversations. So I think that the common wisdom came out of you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s when we were much more transactional, when we had more information on our side, where we were literally trying to make markets. And I mean, if you think about the evolution of sales, at one point, people had an ice box on their porch, and the ice man would put ice in that. And somebody had to go make people buy refrigerators because you never grew up going, I wish I had a refrigerator. Mm -hmm. There wasn't one. So people had to go and force people to do things at that time. But that's changed so much now because the economy's changed so much. All these other commitments tend to be way more important. And the commitment to, to decide and, and make a decision and sign a contract, that tends to be the easiest one if you've done everything else right for most of us. Yeah. But the reason I wrote the book is because all of the literature uh, pretends that it's still um, it's still 1968 or something, and that you need a list of closes all that have names, like the alternative of choice, you know, mm. where I say, Andy, is 2 o'clock today better or would 10 o'clock tomorrow morning work better right. for you? And I'm depriving you of choices by telling you you have to select from something that's mutually exclusive. You just can't do that and feel good about yourself or have your client feel good about you when you do that now. Yeah, so I think to put a frame around the book is is what, what you're saying is closing is really integral to the entire sales process. So it's, it's not a single event. It's part of a series of commitments that you're going to secure from the customer from the point of, of initial contact through them making a decision. And that's it. And that's what we do. We, we gain a series of commitments that lead to that final commitment. And the final commitment, when you get all the other ones correct, ends up being pr pretty easy to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's a sequence to them. And, and anybody that has experience doing enterprise sales, as I do, you know, you, as I go through the book, it's like, well, yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. This is because one thing always does lead to the other. If like you said you're gaining the, that commitment at that stage, and it's it's different though from a lot of what we're hearing today about sales, where we have sort of really tightly defined sales stages and tightly defined exit criteria from a stage to a stage. This is this is uh, more fluid than that. The people that have read the book have immediately said we need to go back and look at our process because we're not gaining a commitment to collaborate with people. And when we get down the stretch, we find out that because they weren't brought in, they're now going to resist the whole initiative and we end up having to push something forward two quarters in our pipeline. And it's supposed to be fluid because really the sales conversation is fluid. I might have a meeting where I'm collaborating with a primary stakeholder and a couple of their peers and then I might have a consensus meeting, and then we all might need to get back together and collaborate because somebody else in this deal decides that they want something else or something different. And so it does end up, you you can go back and forth just like you would in any any complex sale that you're involved in. 
But the fact of the matter is if you don't know that you need consensus and you leave, leave stakeholders out or you don't want to have that conversation about investment until you drop the proposal off, you end up losing down the stretch for something that if you would have had a couple conversations about it as you went through the process would have been much easier to handle at that time and would have been much more beneficial for the client. Well, I think in in many sectors and sales where they're, yeah, things become overly scripted, right? And overly staged, I, I, the word I use, staged. And because of these tightly defined stages and exit criteria for the stage are really all about the seller, not the buyer, right? Did you get this information? Did they agree to this? Did you get this information? And it's, you know, life doesn't work in sort of neatly, <laughs> neatly lined up processes and stages like that. In that's, boxes. That's part, that's in boxes. That's part I'm always sort of frustrated with. But, and sort of doubly frustrated that we've got sort of this you know, younger cohort of, of people coming into sales who, who see sales as this rigid thing as opposed to you know, something that requires a lot on them or depends a lot on their sort of developing I, a, a personal style and personal skills that enable them to navigate this, this fluid environment. I'm, I'm glad you said this because it, it brings up two, two points worth talking about. The first one is the fact that customer verifiable outcomes mean I have to go to you and say, Andy, so you agree that you have a budget for this mm. and you're willing, to, you know, and it's just an awkward conversation to have. And it's not natural to a real sales conversation that you're having. And it's all about, I'm trying to make sure I get what I want without attaching it to anything that you want. Right. And a better conversation sounds something like, um, Andy, I think the investment that we're talking about it looks something like $420,000. And I want to make sure that that's tracking with what you think of this project right now before we do anything else. And is that going to make sense for the rest of your team? Um, because I'm trying to talk about the outcome I'm trying to get, not just making sure that I can check the box. That's number one. So the customer verifiable outcomes have nothing to do with the customer and everything to do with us forecasting, mm -hmm. which is fine. I understand that, but there's a better way to do that. The second thing I would say is that a sales process um, is a map. It's a map that says basically you have to kind of go through these stages. And it doesn't say that you can't back up and go through things more than one time. But I think the book is more like a, a compass. And it's to say, okay, there's a lot of ways to get there. But directionally, you need to make sure that you're going this way. And a compass is a useful tool. Um, no matter where you are, you can figure out where north is and you can start moving that direction. So the the commitments are in the order that I put them in. Although for, and I say this in the book, for a lot of people, I'd move the investment conversation way up. If, if mm -hmm. you sell the highest price thing in the marketplace and you know it's better to have that conversation early to establish the value and the differentiation move it up you know but i wouldn't move it back and say i'm going to go through this and then hand you the proposal and that's the first time you figure out what the investment's going to look like because most of the time that ends up getting you put on a spreadsheet with your competitors and that's not very helpful yeah i mean but you also talk extensively in the book about the buying process and i and i think that you have to sort of make a judgment with all the commitments about you know, how this relates to the customer's buying process. Because, you know, this thing runs in parallel to the sales process. That's um, right. So the only thing I'll say about that is a lot of buyers don't really have a process. They don't. Well, that's the point I was going to get to is, <laughs> is is for most products, and this is the thing that sort of, sort of gets me because you hear people talk with certainty about, you know, make, understanding the buyer's, buyer's process and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, you could be selling a certain 
you know complex piece of of software let's say that that uh you know they may buy once every five years they don't have a process for that right there's no reason for them to have invested the time to have a process for that because it's not something they repeat and if they do they think well the salesperson will come in and they'll ask some questions and we'll get a proposal from them and then we'll look at a couple and decide and that process doesn't serve them and they don't really know like wait you should collaborate we should probably talk to some people and make sure that it's going to be tied very tightly to the outcomes you need we should probably bring in the people that care about this so that they can get what they want and make sure that they can execute i mean there's a number of conversations we should probably have and and i think that a lot of the customer buying journey stuff is really good but I think it's important to remember that the, the, the customer actually is the map. And you have to look at that and say, okay, how do I help this person where they are right now with what they need right now? And it may not be in boxes on a PowerPoint deck. It may be something different that you have to do. And if you sort of understand how to serve them or you think that way, how do I serve them where they are? It's super helpful in, in, in moving them forward and helping them get what they really want. Well, here's here's a point I want to ask you. And I'm curious because... You know, <laughs> respect your opinion on on this is that it seems that we we collectively you know sales authors experts bloggers blah 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 blah, uh sales leaders within companies seem to want to make things appear to be harder today than they really are i mean do you get that sense i mean it's like it's like you know it's harder to get hold of people no no it's still hard but it believe me i can give chapter and verse about why it's not harder than it was in the past. It's just hard. Um, it's always been hard. Yeah. It's always been hard. I mean, yeah. it's, so it's like, I don't, I don't understand the motivation for people I, to make it seem more complex and harder than it really is. And, that, every, and I think we're giving people excuses. Everything's better than it ever was. And I would challenge any salesperson that's under the age. Let's just say that their entire sales career has been during a period of time where we had the tools that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would defy you to go back to 1990 and try to do what you're able to do now. Because if you had a computer on your desk, it would be like a wang. And <laughs> and it would be driven by uh, commands that you would type in. And there was no information about your prospective clients available to you outside of a phone book and outside of a business journal, and maybe you could buy some lists or subscribe to some industry magazines. But I mean, finding the person that you needed, oh my gosh, how much easier is that now? Well, yeah. And I, then I and the channels example. to communicate, you ha- and, and people, I, I do sort of have this romantic relationship with the phone uh, because my single mom who raised four kids, you know, um, built a business and all of us survived by her willingness to pick up the phone and she was petrified of it. So I, I do have that, but it was either that or you get in your car and you drive over and you knock on the door and ask to see somebody. I mean, that th- those were the tools that were available to you uh, compared with other things that we can do now that are just much, much easier. In a lot of ways, some things are easier. I, I would tell you, I think that the expectation of salespeople is much higher and, and we make it look more complicated because of the way we write and talk about it. But the, I think the expectation from clients is, is higher, and that's probably the biggest change. And higher in what degree? Just what they expect from the salespeople. Yeah, I expect more from you. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. I think that's fair. Unfortunately, I don't feel like we're delivering. 
I don't either. And I, I will, um, I'll tell you why I think that is. And I always go back to something that Air Force Colonel John Boyd used to admonish the military with while they were building airplanes. And because they could do something technologically, they would because they wanted to go further, longer, faster. And what he wanted was a missile with a lawn chair uh, and machine guns on the front of it. Mm-hmm. And, and because that's how you win a dogfight. And I think what, what he would say over and over again is people, ideas, technology in that order. And right now we're saying technology and then ideas and then people. And we're getting it backwards. And I don't think we're serving salespeople coming into the profession right now or being developed in the profession by letting them believe that the technology can cover up all the deficiencies they have and what the client really needs from them. The well, client really doesn't need them to be great at LinkedIn. Right. I agree. Yeah. Rather than saying covering up deficiencies is you know covering up uh, places where they need to, they need to invest, right? I mean, yeah. uh, not to say that. And oftentimes, it's just a situation that they haven't learned yet what they need to learn. And I, I yeah, I, I concerned that we sort of create this environment where we create excuses for people. And you know, a similar thing. You talked about cold calling uh, in our our pre pre interview show. And and I remember seeing a survey a couple weeks ago about uh, came out from another podcaster about does cold calling still work? And it just, <laughs> I think I, I yelled something when I saw it. Um, and I had an Aikido master who, when he would touch you, it would feel like you got hit by a train and he wouldn't move very much for that right. to happen. Right. And, and when he would throw you across the room, he would look at the crowd and say, Aikido no work. My Aikido works. Your Aikido may not work. <laughs> and his Aikido worked just fine. But what I find interesting, though, is this is another, we get, we're subject to this group, groupthink phenomenon where, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah let's survey 3,000 know, people relatively new in their sales career you know, from this cohort. And you know, is cold calling still effective? And somebody reads that and says, oh, well, yeah, 60% of the people said it's not effective, so I'm not going to try it. So it's like we're yeah. providing excuses for people not to do things that they should be doing. It, it is, uh, it's 100% true. It's, and it, it is something that I recognized when I first started writing the blog in 2009, that there were a group of people who I described as charlatans. And the sales pitch that they were making, this is very, very early on when the social tools just started to be adopted. The pitch that they were making is, don't you hate cold calling? Isn't it really hard? Don't you hate being rejected? Isn't it tough to hear no? Well, you never have to do that again. And I, and whenever you hear anything that sounds like that, you know, it, it's uh, you can be uh, fit like a fitness model on a diet of pizza and ice cream and Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, and you know that that's not true, but but that's what they set up as the straw man for salespeople to say, I can embrace this because it means I never have to cold call again. And that was an attractive idea to people who are struggling on the telephone. So rather than getting better at the phone, they bought a bunch of lies that have been told that that are not serving people. And I get calls, Mike Weinberg gets calls, Jeb gets calls, Mark Hunter gets calls. I mean, all of us in this space who do anything with sales forces get calls because they're opportunity starved. And they bought this lie that 
everything's going to be inbound. All you have to do is get on LinkedIn and contribute in groups, and you're going to have people beating a door to your path. And it's just not true. And I said this on a call yesterday with uh, Jill Rowley. I mean, the content creators are content marketing. They're not social selling. I'm not a social salesperson. I don't spend my time on LinkedIn sending people in mails, asking them for an appointment. I don't try to go into groups and comment on potential buyers posts. I don't go in and try to answer questions. I'm content marketing. And that's a very difficult thing to require of a salesperson who one may not be a strong writer. Exactly. Number two may not have the, the ideas. Number three, and a great number of companies, uh, like look at financial or pharmaceutical, what's legal going to let you create in the way of content? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. In a regulated any, anything right. you say is illegal, so you can't say it anyway. If you said we have the best product on the market, you can't say that. It will get you these results. Can't say that either. Uh, can't make any promises. And it's just very difficult. They're constrained, and legal won't let you write it. Marketing's not going to approve it. And I think a lot of the marketing that's being created is still from uh, last century, and we haven't yet started arming the sales force with content that they can share that really is about that conversation you and I started with, which is what should I be doing different? How should I be looking at this accelerating, disruptive economic environment I live in? How do I get better results? How do I drive my company forward into the future? And th that would be strategic content, which we're shy on. And we're really good at features and benefits and why us. So what's your your thought about you know, the account-based sales and marketing strategies? I mean, the the version that we've been doing for 20 or 30 years or the new flavor? <laughs> the new flavor. <laughs> the new flavor. It looks a lot. The, this this year's fashion, I mean, we're back to bell bottoms. We we. I mean, the idea that you should have targets with different roles inside a company and you should be able to message them uh, specific to their needs, that's new. How is that new? Oh, shocking how revolutionary that is. I'll tell you what it is. It's a fundamentally good idea. And they get recycled over time. And Andy, you you have been doing this longer than I have, I think. And uh, the thing that you <laughs> I'll never you have to, to that, <laughs> even if he disagrees, folks, a little bit longer, <laughs> I assure you, it, it is. Uh, you know, it's a fashion business, right? Yeah, do you absolutely. do you remember how what the promise of CRM was? CRM is going to radically reshape sales forever. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to do so much better when they have all these things in place. And it didn't, it didn't change the results. Top producers produced. The bottom 20% are still the bottom 20%. You know, the closing, if you look at, at CSO, you know, insights, right. closing rates don't seem to get better. We've no. had social selling now for, let's, I'll call it eight years, something close to that. And the closing rates aren't any better. You know, they're, they're just, it, it's a fashion business and account-based marketing is just the, the new fashion. Right. That's so my opinion. Right. So let me ask the question, though, is so we've there are a lot of really interesting sales tools, technologies that that are available. And I use some you use some, I'm sure is is they're not moving the needle, though. And so I ask this question all the time. The CEOs and founders that come on this, this show is, OK, we got you know great tool. But, you know, if we look at overall, I haven't seen one bit of data telling me that the investment in all this technology is making people more productive. I, I haven't seen that either. I mean, I, I'm sure there are technologies, and I, I just think it matters that you get them in the right order. So if you develop people 
so that they can be consultative, so that they have some point of view that you and I talked about, that they understand how to control the process and actually help people create change inside their company. If you create that person and then you arm them with ideas that have value in the marketplace and then you give them tools, the tools can probably accelerate some of the work that they have to do or at least allow them to have a, a toolkit that, that can help them do better work. I, I think of the electronic chip as a second substrate. It's like an outboard brain. I love having a CRM because I don't have to remember things. Well, and I think it's someplace and it's locked up. Go right. ahead. Well, I think the, the future of the technologies with AI and machine learning and so on is that it does more of those things that, that are repetitive tasks that you have nothing to do with the, the outline you just described about being a person of value that can create value, create opportunities and deliver value to prospects. I, I think what's, but th this is my vision of what, what the future will hold for us in our profession is there, there have always been since ancient times, since there's been man and woman on the planet, people in power have always had trusted advisors. They've always had people who could cover some gap in their thinking that they relied on. Now, that person is probably also going to be leveraging technology and big data and little data and artificial intelligence greater than human intelligence, greater than, greater than human mm -hmm. intelligence to help sort that data and make decisions. But I do believe that that person's always going to have a role. And when you think about the future of sales, I think if you're competing with Amazon, Amazon can out-transact you. So if all you can do is share with me what products are available and how much I have to pay for them, like a catalog, I mean, the Internet's a really good catalog. So if that's all the value you bring as a salesperson is I can show you the catalog and tell you what we have available, it's going to be very, very hard to retain uh, a role in a world where ideas and insight and creativity and resourcefulness and the ability to know how to get those results is what's really going to differentiate and create value in the marketplace. Yeah, if you think back to, I think it was 1999, 98, Neil Rackham wrote his book, you know, Rethinking the Modern Sales Force. And, you know, the idea was that if, if you as a salesperson think of yourself as a sales channel, let's say, that if you as a channel have no value to the buyer, then they're purely going to buy on cost. Yeah, and they are. And they will. So, you know, whole segments, you know, we don't need pencil salesmen anymore, right? <laughs> but no. But in complex enterprise sales and even down, you know, products, as you said, with some value, risk, and complexity to it, we need you. So how you stay relevant is, is up to you. I'm a, I'm a good content marketer. And I got a call from HubSpot. Mm -hmm. And I, I moved my platform to HubSpot because they were able to show me they know things about producing better results in content marketing than I do. Mm -hmm. And that was a cold call, by the way. Yeah. Uh, they, they called, called me and said, we think we have the ability to help you with some ideas. And they did. And they have those ideas. And that that's the value. What do you know that I don't know? And how can you help me further my goals? That That's what you have to be now to be successful in sales. And the book is about controlling the process so you can actually have a reasonably good shot of being that. And by being that, you massively increase the odds of making change and, and winning opportunities. Excellent. Hey, we're going to finish right on that note. Perfect way to, to wrap it up. 
You must have had your eye on the clock. So, Anthony, thanks for joining me. Tell folks how they can find out more about the book and connect with you. Best place to connect is thesalesblog.com or youtube.com forward slash Anarino, and you can find the book at thelawstartofclosing.com. Excellent. All right, Anthony, as always, pleasure to have you on the show. We'll have you back on again before too long. 125 uh, episodes, apparently. I mean, that, that's what I'm tracking for, right? All right. About uh, All right. one every 125. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we better get you signed up because those are going to come pretty quickly. So, <laughs> all right. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest and my friend, Anthony Iannarino, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.